Well, good evening, everyone. I know it's a Thursday night and not a Monday night, but you know what? Uh, we have a special guest, and she just can't do Mondays, and it was important to us that she come on with us. So here we are on a Thursday night with Episode 5 of History and Whiskey. I am John Cole, of course. With me, my man, Pete Kehoe. How are you today, Pete? Good, sir. And yourself? Uh, wonderful. I'm just hanging out down here in my cellar in the, in the basement in Howell, Michigan, just uh, watching my whiskey, uh, you know, age and, and get ready. I love it. <laughs> uh, so Justin couldn't join us tonight. He's lost his voice. So sadly, he's not around. Um, but Mickey's here. And, and that's cool. And uh, two of my favorite things happened this week. One, you got to go see a baseball game yesterday and the Tigers won. Yes. And yeah. uh, Pete got to play live music in front of real people. I did, and it was amazing. <laughs> so two of my favorite things. Well, we are here today, Whiskey and History, and um, this particular episode was um, inspired by a bottle of whiskey that uh, my bosses had given me for my birthday, a 13-year-aged uh, Mayor Pingree blend from Valentine in Detroit. And uh, I didn't know who Mayor Pingree was. Oh, we lost Pete for a minute. Um, so I looked him up and I thought, wow, this guy's fascinating. We should drink this whiskey. We should talk about him. Um, and while trying to find somebody who um, knew a lot about the whiskey, uh, I had a mutual friend, and I, I'm blanking now, that introduced us virtually, Mickey, and um, said, I don't know about the whiskey, but she sure as hell knows about the mayor. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember who, uh, who connected us either. Yeah. But, absolutely. So um, I didn't, I guess I didn't meet up with you. I met up with your mailbox um, <laughs> a, a little bit ago and I, and I picked up a copy of your book and uh, you wrote this book called uh, Wicked I don't know Detroit. what's going on. Uh, well, I hear you now kind of Pete, your uh, internet just seems a little out, but anyways, you wrote this wonderful book called Wicked Detroit and basically every main road in the city of Detroit is named after a, a, a gentleman for the history of Detroit here and you pretty much wrote about all of them and kind of, um, you know, we think of them just as kind of street corners, right? But they were real people and uh, they were a big part of the history of Detroit and uh, some of them weren't necessarily the nicest, kindest people, but that's kind of kind of the way of the world of powerful men back in the day. They, they kind of stepped on people to get where they went, didn't they? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, really, the the history of Detroit, as told through these ten characters from from its history, um, really, we started off the same way we kept going. I would say, you know, from the very beginning, Cadillac was swindling people out of property and land and and things, and just kept on going right through the through the years and the centuries. Yeah. So I'm going to post in the chat where everybody's watching us, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, wherever, um, a couple of the web pages here, DetroitDrinkHistory.com and ProhibitionDetroit.com. That, that's you. Tell us about it. Yeah. So ProhibitionDetroit.com I've been working on for, uh, we're coming up on almost 10 years now. Uh, it's a, basically it's a history of Detroit during Prohibition, essentially. So it's a book, it's a website. Uh, I did a few years back a historic bar challenge. So I uh, have, have also been an experienced bartender as anyone, any good historian needs to be, right? Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Something's gotta pay the bills. Uh, Pete and I have both taken our turn behind the bar, that's for sure. Yeah, yes, so I did, I did a, a historic bar challenge where I, set myself up to bartend at least one actual real physical shift 
uh, at each one of Detroit's former speakeasies. Very so, cool. Nice. Yeah. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Very cool. Pete, right before we started, we were talking about uh, Lily's slash Painted Lady, and that was a speakeasy during Prohibition. So yeah. Taking my the basement is, The basement's amazing in that building, at least from what yeah. I remember years ago. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, before we dive into the history of, uh, of how we, we get up to Mayor Pingree and the characters that preceded him, uh, we like to talk about what's in the glass. Peter, what do you have up there? Uh, I have my old standby tonight, um, uh, Maker's Mark with a, uh, a single large cube. Yes. I was just talking to uh, Darshan, which there'll be a, um, a, a video I'll play. I did an interview with my friend Darsh, who is going to tell us about um, the actual whiskey, Mayor Pingree. We'll play it at the end of the show because we, we were hoping to do four or five minutes. We did 10 minutes, and that's a little long to take a break on the podcast. So we'll play it at the end. Um, but we were talking about Maker's Mark and how... It's the, the beautiful thing about it is, you know, it might not be the fancy, flashiest, newest thing, right? But it's it's solid. It's good. You're not mad if anybody takes your bottle and mixes it with Coke. You know, it's just fine, but it's also excellent straight up. But, like, I stopped at a gas station in the middle of nowhere in the UP about two weeks ago, and you know what was on the shelf behind the bartender or the, behind the, the salesperson's bottle maker's mark. You can literally find yep. it anywhere. It's safe. It's True. easy. It's always around. What do you got down yep. there, Mickey? Uh, so I'm double fisting it here. I've got a, a Chilean Pinot Noir, and then I also I did stop up at the tasting room in Ferndale this afternoon and got the uh, nice the, the rye. The rye. Yeah. Lord oh, knows I'm nice. on the bourbon on the shelves right now. So right. <laughs> I thought I'd give a rye a go. No, I love it. Um, I unfortunately, of course, didn't get to uh, open the bottle of thirteen that we um, were going to. Um, I had a bottle, which is what is inspired this topic. And uh, I had a friend in need and I sent it to an auction and we raised $1,300 for him. So it went to a good cause. Um, but sadly, Pete, I didn't get to drop you off a little mason jar like I was planning on a couple of weeks ago. So I apologize. We're losing Pete a little bit on his internet again, but that's okay. a good cause. I bet it was. <laughs> <coughs> So I'm I'm gonna drink a, a, a airplane bottle of legacy whiskey. Well yeah, that's that's gonna be good, I promise. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll take your word for it. Everything's fine. Everything's fine over here. It's fine. Uh, so uh, Let's do. I, I know you know it's it's a you have a whole book about it, so we, we'll talk briefly on it. And for people who want to expand on it, of course, I, I put the link to your stuff up there. People saw you could find it at your publisher at the beginning of the show. You can reach out to us afterwards if you want to know. We'll, we'll put you in touch with how to find it. You can ask your local bookstore to please order it from the uh, publisher. I know Pete's going to do that up in McLean and Eaton, one of the greatest bookstores yeah. around. Um, so anyways, um, so let's get started on, uh, I think Cadillac's probably a good place to start. We'll just briefly go with, with, with Cadillac and, and we'll move on to maybe uh, Woodward and Campau because those are all big names and we'll catch up to where Mayor Pingree is. So, so take us to um, the little fur trading spot that later became the Paris of the uh, Midwest. Yeah, so I mean, honestly, Cadillac sold this idea of Detroit that that none of us who actually live in Detroit could possibly recognize. You know, when when he's writing these letters back to the court in France, he's talking about how you know you can grow the best Burgundian wines here, 
that um, all these places, you know, it's it's full of all these magical fruits and citrus. It never snows in in the city on the Straits, or you know, in the settlement on the Straits. So he's <laughs> making all these absolutely wild claims that you know Detroit was essentially founded on a series of lies. So yeah, <laughs> no, fascinating. And then um, I I know that. Um, for a guy, I grew up up north with Pete and Petoskey, and I, I live in Howell, so not really close to Detroit by any means. Uh, but one of the things when I first started selling beer as a, as a brewery rep uh, down in Detroit was just kind of the wackiness of the layout of the town. Yeah. And I um, thank Woodward for that one. Yeah, right? So then I got to your chapter on Woodward and how he had kind of based it on basically like Paris, where there's just these kind of geometrical, like kind of triangles and pinwheels and that it was made. So every time you expand it, you just add another like geometric se section and, and plop it down in there. And then what a grand idea for what was it? Middle of the, the, the 18, the, the 1805. Yeah, 1805, the beginning yeah. of the 1800s, like just to have this vision to to make this grand city out of basically a trading post. Yeah, and in 1805, Woodward writes a plan and he de he designs a city that will hold 5 million people. Now, no right. city anyone knows has 5 million people <laughs> in it in 1805. I mean, does Detroit have 5 million people now? No, it right? doesn't even have a million anymore. So, you know, he's got these grand, grand schemes, but he runs right up against the actual people that actually live in Detroit, which was a farming village at the time. And what they wanted more than anything else wasn't grand parkways and boulevards. They wanted access to the river so that they could water their crops. So he tries to build these streets and these intersecting, you know, boulevards and parks and things like that. And people just completely and totally ignore him because their property is the long, narrow ribbon farms. And so they don't really care what Woodward's roads are supposed to do. So that's how we sort of end up with downtown, this, this grid pattern over top of a spoken wheel pattern. Yeah, it's a it's a strange place with all the one-way streets and turnarounds. And uh, yeah, when I was trying to get used to selling beer down there, I got lost a lot. Pete, yeah. have you spent a lot of time in Detroit? I did. And playing, you know, back in the day, I used to play at the Magic Stick and like, you know, uh, yeah, if you don't know downtown Detroit and you're uninitiated, uh, you can, especially before the days of, you know, like Google Maps on your phone, uh, yeah, you, you could be screwed. And you can get turned around and end up like, you know, west of Grand River, like in some neighborhoods that you didn't want to be in, like, you know, very easily, you know. Oh, so, man. I'm, I'm telling you, yeah. I, it never happened to me, but there's a, a good friend of mine, a, another beer rep in the state that uh, lives over on the west side and was coming over to visit Detroit. And he's and he's like on Facebook. He's like, I don't know what just happened, but I'm in line to get in Canada. And I, <laughs> I don't know how I got here because, like, you certainly can be trying to get into town and, and take that downtown exit. And if you don't get off that highway, you literally are staring at customs and, and they don't like when you turn around. Yeah. Yep. That's the one exit on 96 that it's like, oh no, you're going to Canada, whether you want to or not. Right. Yep. Now. Have fun. Yep. See you over there. Yep. Uh, and, and honestly, Pete, you said something about Google maps. You know, I don't know if it's any better now, but when I was doing a lot of sales down there, when I was working for Saugatuck Brewing Company, like the, the buildings messed with the GPS. So the, you know, that didn't help you. So you ended up having to just kind of zoom into the map and like look at street signs in the old fashioned way, um, trying to figure out. And that was only like, you know, eight years ago, I couldn't get Google maps to work down there to save my life. So. Yeah. Yeah. I used to print out, I used to print out map quests. Maps, actually, that's mm -hmm. you know. I mean, 
you know, 20 years ago or whatever. Sure. <laughs> no, it, it's but, just, yeah. it's fascinating. And I guess it hasn't really changed Mickey that much that, you know, um, power really was inherited and who you knew. Oh like, yeah. When they, when they sent, you know, all these people over from the East coast to come be our territory governors and stuff like these people didn't have any experience. They didn't know what they were doing. They just, you know, they had a cousin who was this person's brother, who was that person's, you know, sister. And, and yeah. they're like, Hey, you've got power, money and influence. You're going to Michigan. Yeah. And half of them didn't even want to be there. You know, oh, for sure. Woodward Hall, you know, half of these guys saw Detroit as a backwater that they had to endure mm -hmm. before they could get, you know, promoted to the positions that they really wanted back east. Mm -hmm. And that showed in the early years of Detroit and the kind of neglect that we suffered from, I think, because of all of these territorial judges and, and controllers who just really didn't care anything right. about the people that I lived mean I don't think much has changed. They were just super blatant about it when, when the, you know, when the governor and the judge came over and they, and they ran, you know, Woodward and Hull and they, they basically like, okay, we need to build this. Uh, which one of your cousins or friends are we going to pay to do it and pay them five times the going amount to do it. And then we're going to collect 30% of that back in private taxes. And it, it was just so corrupt. And, uh, and then fast forward a little bit, you get to um, the people that ran the bars and taverns and how that really was, um, the center of politics, where these guys that owned these taverns, those were kind of the self-made men. Those weren't necessarily the people who came into money. They they ran a little tavern and ended up, you know, getting the influence over the the people working the boats and and really navigating the votes for people. and And it took a lot of uh, it took a lot of power from the right amount of people to kind of wrestle that away from these basically innkeepers who were in charge of who was getting elected, like kind of union bosses of sorts. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, especially starting in the 1840s when we start to see more immigrants coming into Detroit after the Erie Canal opens up and you've got all the Great Lakes shipping happening. You know, these saloon and tavern owners really did run their little fiefdoms. Mm -hmm. You know, they're the, the tavern or the bar is the social center for everybody. You know, if you're an immigrant, you go to the bar where they sell the beer you recognize and they speak the language that you recognize. And you go there and you cash your checks and you find out, you know, where to get a new job. Maybe you find a place to live. Mm -hmm. So the, the kind of power that gets consolidated by these tavern, tavern owners and saloon keepers is, is pretty impressive. And they sort of carry that over into the running of the city government in the early. So by the time, Hazen Pingree comes along. Uh, the city is run by the mayor and then the common council, which is sort of like city council, but it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. It has uh, 16 different wards. So these little geographic sections of town and each ward has two aldermen who, 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 you know, serve on the city council essentially. Mm -hmm. And those guys are made up of saloon keepers or whoever the saloon keeper wants to elect to office sure so kind of a uh, an ancient form of gerrymandering yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and you know the kind of the kind of stunts that they would pull on election day are are legendary right <laughs> yeah i mean it was it, it just mostly my knowledge comes from your book like i'm not a history guy i'm the most prepared for this show that i've been for any of the previous six because i read your book so i you know the whole stick with this was is um my buddy justin and he's just a history buff and i'm so sad he's not here because i know mm -hmm. that um he's always entertaining but this is what would happen is is we grew up together he moved away 
he came back, you know, 30 years in between seeing this guy. And we just started hanging out at the bar, having a glass of whiskey. And then inevitably he'd catch a little buzz and start telling me about the civil war or world war one or something. And I just go, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or, you know, I know the basic facts that might pop up when you click Wikipedia open. And, you know, most of that isn't really true or right. So, uh, you know, he'd be like, yeah, a lot of people think that, but this is what really happened. And I said, man, we should start a podcast and, and just this is what it should be. Yeah. Uh, so here we are. This is how it happened. But I, I read your book, so I feel like empowered this time. But um, no, it was fascinating because all these people, you know, they, they work these they go off for months and work and they come back. Well, they don't have a house. So they'd live in these, you know, these inns with these barkeepers and, and the barkeepers are basically like, Hey, you know, your meals on me, you're going to vote for the person I tell you to vote for. Uh, hey, you don't have to pay rent this month because it's election month and you're going to vote the way I want or, or you have to pay me rent. Early uh, and often. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it was really fascinating. Um, and just kind of the, the, even all the way down to, I mean, the camp house with the horse racing and, and just, just greed begets greed begets greed. And then, you know, you, you've got all these just miserable people that, that basically ran and, and took charge of things. And, and then you get Mayor Pingree in and, and Mayor Pingree is kind of like Harvey Dent of Batman, right? He wanted to come in and clean it up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this guy was, I think in Detroit, we've just, we've sort of accepted, you know, Pingree was amazing and he was great, but we don't really pay enough heed to just how absolutely revolutionary he is in the late 19th century. You know, the kinds of policies that he's advocating for still haven't been put into place, mm -hmm. uh, even though a lot of people want them to be put into place. And, and the, the kinds of machine politics that he's fighting up against. You know, this is, this is the boss tweed era of politicking. And this is the big bosses running the town every, just down to every single city contract. And Pingree comes in and he's got zero experience as a politician and he's got very little education. We're not sure he had even the equivalent of a high school education, but he is fired up. And he just comes through and just sweeping changes and pisses everybody off uh, and just does a lot of good at a time when the city really, really needed it. So how, how did he come into power and influence? It seems like everybody else in that book, you know, they've got their, their father or, or back in Spain or, you know, someone's got all this power and, and um, you know, prestige. And you look at Campau and he was like the fourth Campau and you look at, you know, all the, you know, where did Pingree come from? Maine, of all places. His, his parents were farmers in, in Maine. And his father was also a cobbler on the side. And so Pingree learned that from his father. And then he started uh, in first in Seiko, Maine, and then in Hopkinton, Massachusetts. And he worked in shoe factories. And he was a leather cutter at a shoe factory. And so, then, so I don't know how effectual he was in the Civil War, but he has an interesting history. Yeah. He was... Um, he was one of the very first people in 1862 from Hopkinton to sign up to be in the Civil War. Uh, so he volunteered and he went down and he was in a couple of battles and was didn't see a whole lot of straight action, but he was captured and served or was a prisoner at the infamous Anders Andersonville prison. Yeah. Yeah, and then I saw he escaped by answering the name of a roll call of a prisoner exchange that wasn't his. 
I have heard that. Yeah. I haven't been able to track down that reference. So. Right. I was I was reading your book, and then of course he's only a minor feature of your book because your really work, your book really focuses on the villains of the history of Detroit, not necessarily the the icon of Detroit. Um, but his Wikipedia page is fascinating. Basically, it says he gets captured, he's trying to escape. They do a roll call for a prisoner exchange. You know, somebody doesn't answer the name, so he says, "Nope, that's me." <laughs> he gets exchanged, ends up with um, uh, who was the general? He ended up with. Sherman. Was that Sherman? Sherman. Yes. Sherman. He ended up with, he ended up with Sherman ends up at the, um, you know, at, at a couple of the famous battles ends up being in the room when Robert E. Lee surrenders. He's the <laughs> yeah, first yeah, yeah. of the civil war, you know? Right. So is it all true? I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say cause I couldn't really find a whole lot of references outside of Wikipedia, but Pete, the man's a fascinating man. I, I know your internet's been struggling a little bit. So, um, uh, you know what? I've never had this problem when we've done this before, John. I have no idea what's going on. I'm blaming it on Spectrum. So, uh, uh, very uh, kind of illustrious Civil War career. Uh, he was in a lot of major battles, and not only not only was he in Andersonville, but after he did the whole prisoner exchange escape kind of, you know, uh, assuming the other identity, he went back to his regiment and fought out the rest of the war. He had another like year left and then ended up at Appomattox with Robert E. Lee and Grant, you know, for the surrender. And, Crazy. Uh, and that that was corroborated. Well, I don't know. It was in the uh, Detroit News article that I read about him, I think, maybe along with Wikipedia. But um, he was yeah, he was just uh, he was the go getter and uh, just, you know, a firebrand, uh, apparently. I mean, that's what seemed to characterize the guy his whole life is that he just did what he thought was right and really fought and really walked the walk instead of just, you know, talk the talk. So, uh, and, and what's fascinating is how he got his wealth before he was um, uh, mayor of Detroit was from what I understand is he, is he moved to Detroit. He uh, became a partner in a shoe company. The partner retired. He took it over and over 20 years grew it to a million dollar company in the 1800s. That's, that's insane. Yeah. So, I mean, so he was a big business owner, but one sort of side note that I don't want us to get like too bogged down in, but it's just fascinating. His partner, Charles Smith, I swear to God, was a character in some kind of weird spy novel because <laughs> the man staged his own death. Uh, he was at a dinner party. There was a knock on the door and he went to answer it and was never seen again. So his widow had to go through the courts for years and say, well, we need to declare him dead. He's just gone. He disappeared without a trace. We don't know what happened to him. 15 years later, he reappears as a dock laborer in New York City. And Hazen Pingree has been paying for him to live basically all of this time. He basically, so this is Charles Smith. He just got like, he got sick of his life and was like, nah, screw this. And just left, just up and left. <laughs> it's just, it's so bizarre. And I just, I found that in a footnote of a book, I think in one of jo uh, John Lodge's autobiography, mm -hmm. but just such a strange, strange story. But yeah, so Pingree, Pingree owns this, this shoe factory, uh, this very, very successful shoe factory. And one of his earliest experiences there in, I guess not one of the earliest, but in 1885, I think it is, his employees go on strike because they want better wages, shorter hours, uh, that kind of stuff. 
and the strike drags on for a year and Pingree refuses to negotiate and it drags on, drags on. Finally, they have to call in an arbitrator. It gets arbitrated. Everybody is equally unhappy with the situation. And what Pingree takes away from that experience is I should have arbitrated right from the beginning. You know, I should have spoken Changes to my employees. Yeah, it does. Because he was one of the early advocates for, you know, five days work, eight hours a day, you know, and child labor. Yeah. Yeah. In 1891, the um, streetcar workers in Detroit are rioting. And in fact, the, the people, the citizens of Detroit are rioting right there with them. Uh, Jail Hudson sends out his employees with revolvers to defend him. He bake, he makes some sandwiches. <laughs> so they're they're knocking over streetcars because the streetcar employees were working eighty one hours a week, and they had asked to work seventy two hours a week instead. <laughs> and the streetcar company owners refused to allow it. So they went on strike, and the city pretty much went with them and said, yeah, absolutely. So they knocked streetcars over, dragged one of them out into the river. So, yeah, it was a wild scene. And Pingree refused. And the, the sort of standard operating procedure at this point is to call in the National Guard or to call in the Army. And Pingree says, no, absolutely not. I am not putting yeah, the National the right. Guard yeah. against the citizens. Which, you know, we've seen directly in the last couple of years, this kind of debate, you know, what do we use the National Guard for in cases of civil unrest? Yeah. So It's really fascinating. And, and I know it wasn't his philosophy, and it's in our show notes, which I, of course, don't have up. But uh, one of his philosophies was, um, I'm going to have to look it up now. I think it's in our private chat. You put it up there, didn't you? Hmm. Maybe not. Yeah, I got it. Anyways, one of his philosophies was um, was basically the working family needed to be protected. The working family was the backbone. I think that you're right. I think the strike and and what happened to him at his factory kind of opened his eyes to, hey, I became a multimillionaire, and it was off the backs of these people, and he wanted to take care of those people. So he belonged to this. The, this belief that basically taxes needed to not be applied to the you know lower middle class to to the lower class people that wealth was really at that time the only way you had wealth was really uh, land ownership mm-hmm. and the landlords were brutal of course in the 1800s in the early 1900s and and they believed that taxes should be on land and not necessarily on sales and not on income um, and it should really only go to infrastructure and and social networks right. And that's fascinating in the 1800s to have a man of power basically say, you shouldn't keep giving me money. You guys should have right. the money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this is the Gilded Age. And he is a he could very well have been a robber baron. He's a big factory owner. You know, Pingree Shoe Factory was the second largest in the country. Yeah. <clears throat> it was huge. Yeah. I saw at the height he was selling uh, uh, something or he had 700 employees in the in the mid 1800s that's that's insane yeah the company grew from eight eight employees i believe uh to over 700 and uh, the interesting uh parallel i find with pingree is teddy roosevelt at the same time came from wealth and privilege and was the uh and and along with pingree uh you know the monopoly buster you know i mean you know fighting for the common guy, even though they came from wealth and privilege. I mean, 
there, there was, uh, there were a few people that were doing that uh, at the same time, and and he also actually supported McKinley. He was a, he was instrumental in getting McKinley reelected uh, with regard to Michigan's vote too. You know, I had to throw that in there. So, <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I love it, and and he just. For me, like I, I, I'm riding along with those things. Like he, he believed that that privatization of public utilities was the death of everyone. That that utilities and what mm-hmm. benefited the common man needed to be public owned, not private owned. Mm-hmm. And we're still fighting that battle today. Right. Yeah. He advocated for municipal ownership of things like gas companies, utilities, the streetcars, of course, but. Because of the way that these things, these systems were set up, you know, the gas company got in Detroit had a 50 year franchise. They signed a contract where basically they they were the sole providers of gasoline. And this is, you know, or gas, you know, this is when everything was done with all the lighting was was natural gas, you know, for 50 years. So, of course, they can do hike the prices up to whatever they want. And in, in Detroit, gas prices were almost twice everything else. And in other cities, they were twice what Cleveland's were. So they're just exploiting and exploiting and exploiting. This is at the absolute worst possible time because the panic of 1893 was until the Great Depression hits 50 years later, 40 years later, was the worst depression the country had ever seen. So the panic of Mm -hmm. people are on the verge of starvation in Detroit when the panic of 1893 hits. So the difference between a five cent rail fare and a three cent rail fare is significant. And this, of course, is when you consider. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and this is when he institutes the the famous potato patches. Oh, yes. And uh, a pound of beef in in 1900 was three cents. Wow. So that gives you, uh, uh, you know, a barometer of like what that was worth as far as the streetcar prices go. But yeah, the potato patch, urban farming. He invented urban farming, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was actually, I do have to say this, it was his wife's idea. Oh. His, his daughter recalled years later that they had been taking a carriage ride through the city and his wife had said, boy, it just seems to make so much sense that so many of, of the folks that are out of work, 50%, uh, unemployment among immigrants in Detroit was at 50% during the panic of 1893. So she says, you know, it. they all came from farms. They're all farmers. And we have so much empty land here in Detroit. It just seems like we should be able to put those two together. And they did. All, always a, a great idea behind a great man, isn't there? Always. Yeah. Yeah, my wife and I talk about it quite a bit. And um, we were just kind of laughing because we were, uh, I was reading uh, not only your book, but a few other things where they're talking about, you know, women's rights to vote and and how even some of these great characters in history who were wonderful people at the time, they're like, well, we can't we can't have women voting if they if they vote and they and they don't agree with their husband, it'll cause marital issues and it'll it'll break the foundation of their family values. And so women can't vote because the, the, we can't have the, the, the husband and wife arguing over over a vote. Over politics. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, what should happen if they vote differently from the man? No oh, God. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, it's just a fascinating topic. And I, and I love that part of history and how, how it was so obvious for so long, <laughs> all these rights that need to be done and how many decades it took to get it done. Uh, it's always a fascinating subject. 
-hmm. Now, the other thing uh, that I found interesting about uh, Pingree was uh, that he made known and he made uh, he took pains to make make it known that he was not a uh, uh, a teetotaler and that there was a there was a big movement uh, against alcohol going at that time. And he kind of befriended people and the saloon owners. And that was one of the ways that he kind of kept, you know, his, his four consecutive terms in Detroit, that and the fact that he enlisted the support of the, 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 the Polish people. Um, and ended up buying it. I think he bought a German newspaper as well to help <laughs> bolster his, his his popularity in the German community. Right? And That's he funny. Was German, not that I know of. He bought know. a German newspaper, fired the yeah. old editor, put in his own guy, and all of a sudden he was endorsed for governor. Then, <laughs> brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. Speaking of that, uh, he had the distinction of uh, being elected governor while still the mayor of Detroit and tried to hold on to both jobs. Yeah, that's true. So we're, so we're not that exactly. far away from machine politics, are we? You right. know, it's like, no. yeah, I don't no, see any that's true. No, yeah. it's fine. It's like, and I can be the uh, I could be the Supreme Court justice of Michigan at the same time. Everything's fine. No problem at all. He almost pulled it off, though. That it was uh, yeah. it was finally deemed unconstitutional in the state constitution, but almost pulled it off. Yeah. Thankfully, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, uh, any last thoughts we haven't touched on that you want to touch on, Pingree, uh, Mickey, before we uh, get to the interview with Darsh and talk about the uh, the wonderful liquor that our friends at Valentine have been um, uh, aging and blending? I mean, I think it's just the absolutely revolutionary nature of, of Pingree's ideas then and even still today. I mean, he's, propo he's proposing New Deal style reforms and projects and, and WPA type projects in the city of Detroit 50 years before anybody else does. And it just, I think we could learn a lot even still today from Pingree's ideas on municipalities and on urban reform really yeah pete anything else from you sir i found it very refreshing that the man did not kowtow to party politics and veered wildly outside of them and garnered a huge following with the populace i mean like the working man uh, and and this is all, and we forget, I think, that this is all prior to the industrialization, the true industrialization of Detroit, where there was a huge, after him, there was a huge influx of immigrants that he he tapped into. He was very prescient as far as a lot of his, uh, you know, his methodologies. And, you know, uh, he, he foresaw a lot of the future, I think, you know, he... He had a looking glass, man, that he was looking through, and he saw a lot of things way before a lot of other people did. I was very impressed in my in doing my research about this guy. So, yeah, he's absolutely fascinating, and I can't wait to to um, dig deeper into him afterwards. He's he's right up my political alley, mm -hmm. personally. So, I love it. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we have a couple of things to uh, keep up here. Again, please go check out her book, Wicked Detroit. Uh, the post um, has been posted in the chat room, so you can see where to find that. Um, also, the next show is 11 days away, Pete, not 14. Oh, boy. You're super excited. May gonna 24th, be... we're going to talk about the Mormon king of Beaver Island. I have a lot of uh, a lot of information and knowledge about that guy. 
All right, before that day, we're going to upgrade your internet. We're going to get you a direct internet connection instead of your Wi-Fi, and we're going to... I'm so close to the Wi-Fi. It, that, that's not the issue. John, come on now. I have never had problems before tonight, correct? Uh, you know what? It's always with me trying to help you out. That's that's when your problems come. I think I'm just a bad luck charm for you. I think you are. <laughs> well, uh, I hope everything works well with Justin and you because um, I don't know anything about that topic, so I'm not going to be helpful leading that conversation. Well, he and I will put the, uh, you know, we'll get on the Google Drive and put like an outline together uh, uh, between the two of us, definitely. <laughs> well, I love it. Well, stick around, guys. Uh, I'm going to play an interview that I did with my friend Darshan, and he's going to talk about the uh, the bottle of liquor that um, uh, inspired the show, the 13-year-aged Mayor Pingree from uh, Valentine. And uh, it's a special bottle, very highly sought after and difficult to find. So I hope you enjoy that interview. Uh, Mickey Lyons, thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully I get to have a, a beverage with you in person one of these days. Yeah, someday soon. Cheers. I would absolutely love it. Pete, thank you so much. Cheers. If you want to stick around and watch the interview, I'll chat with you after the show. All right. All right. Love it. Thank you. Let's see. Did I load it in here? Of course I didn't load it in here. So I'm going to play our commercial break and then load that video in here. So thanks again, guys. <laughs> All right, I found it. Pete, are you ready? Excellent. All right, here we go. Enjoy my friend Darsh and I talking about Mayor Pingree whiskey from our friends Valentine down in Detroit. And uh, if anybody wants to have a cheers after it, uh, the link is in the comments. You're welcome to join us uh, after this brief 10-minute interview. Enjoy. Well, I'd really like to uh, welcome in a guest today on the history and whiskey show my good friend darsh how are you buddy i'm doing well how are you jonathan you know i uh i am uh, enjoying life in in my cellar I, I checked a couple of these barrels uh earlier they're you know they're not quite there but uh get a couple more years and i think we can start kind of blending them in i like it just got to keep an eye on them that's right you know i keep it nice and dark and dank down here um howell michigan is is a is an underrated place to uh, uh sell some bourbon barrels I've heard that it's like in the Goldilocks zone of whiskey aging. So it, it truly is. Yeah. So uh, I, uh, of course, is uh, sadly not really where I'm at, but uh, you really are in front of those beautiful bottles, and uh, I love it, my friend. I love it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been quality testing a lot of these bottles. That's why some of them are near the end of their their useful life, but. Uh, you know, this shelf was kind of built in. This house was built, I think, in like 1970, and nice. probably housed some really ugly figurines at some point. So I thought I would, I would make something a little more useful out of it. Spruce it up a little bit. That's uh, right. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Of course, we're recording this a little early, uh, but the show is is live. We're taking a little break right now uh, to talk to you. We are uh, knee deep in the history of Detroit and uh, how it got built and the and the powerful men that made it happen and and. They're unscrupulous ways, really. I don't know if you know much of the history of uh, Cadillac and Woodward and, and Campau and all the great streets of Detroit uh, have a have a person behind them. Um, they weren't particularly nice people. Uh, I believe you. And you know what? <laughs> See, that's why I got to watch the podcast more often so I can so I can learn. Right. 
kind of stuff. You know? Well, uh, Mickey Lyons is a wealth of knowledge. I'm glad that she has joined us, and I can't wait to finish the show. But in the meantime, we are going to get talking about Mayor Pingree, the man, uh, who was a, a very progressive mayor of Detroit and, and pushed for a lot of things that society is still pushing for now, breaking down monopolies and um, you know, very, very cautious of the greed of corporations and really wanted the power uh, to be with the people and not with the corporations. And that was, you know, the end of the 1800s or the beginning of the 1900s. So he was uh, championing things we're still fighting for now. Right. Um, but uh, he's he's really a, a hero and an iconic image of uh, not only the, the Civil War, but uh, the state of Michigan. He was the mayor of Detroit. He was uh, the governor of Michigan for a period as well. And uh, our friends down at Valentine uh, dedicate a, a certain particular blend of their whiskey to Mr. Hazen S. Pingree. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, that's what I'm drinking right now, the uh, Mayor Pingree 13-year Black Label, which is which is a blend. Um, I'm far from a, from a Mayor Pingree, Pingree whiskey expert, but I would certainly consider myself to be an enthusiast. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I'll be the first to admit I don't know a ton about the, the history of the mayor himself. But as far as the whiskey goes, uh, you know, I, I've spent plenty of time with Justin Aiden, the uh, the distiller there, and someone who really, really knows his stuff and top to bottom uh, is very, very passionate about what he does, him and Rafino Valentine both. This particular uh, blend of whiskey is multiple MGP barrels. Uh, the youngest of which would have been 13 years old um, in different proportions. And, and micro blending is something that takes a lot of talent to do because you're not just relying on pulling a really good barrel. You're blending things together and, and looking for a great expression, which this absolutely is. And it's it's one of multiple blends that they've done and, and one of many, I think, to come. Yeah, sadly, I, I had a bottle and uh, it was a, a wonderful <laughs> gift from my uh, bosses at Witch's Hat Brewing for my birthday this year. Um, and uh, yes, autographed by John and Vito and, and just uh, a beautiful thing. Um, and as you know, and I reached out for a little uh, support from you and, and some people you knew, uh, I had a friend who was in need and uh, we needed to raise some money and fast for him. And I thought, you know what? Um, some things are more important than whiskey. So I uh, auctioned off my, my beautiful bottle uh, without even opening it. I, for a minute, I thought about asking the guy who won if I could pull it quick dram off of it, but I, you know, I, I decided not to. So I'm glad you're here because I wanted somebody to open it, drink it, tell us what it tasted like. Um, and since I couldn't do it, I'm so happy that you heaped our call. So tell us a little bit about it. What's it tasting like right now? Uh, you know, what's, what's the predominant notes and the feel of it and what do you compare it to, to maybe some, um, you know, bigger national scale, uh, whiskeys that are out there? Sure. Well, first, you know, I'll backtrack for a second and say that my bottle is always open to you. So like I told you, you know, kind of before the show, when you want to jump on the uh, iLogic helicopter and make your way over here, there's always a poor waiting for you. I you like know? it. Um, but this particular this particular bottle, um, it, it a lot of the Mayor Pingree stuff that's come out, it doesn't necessarily compare to some of the national things and brands that you'll find on the shelf. And, and that's one of the things that's kind of cool about it is can be, you know, it can be very unique. Uh, this particular one, you know, you've got kind of this, uh, this clove cigarette kind of nose to it. And then it has kind of on, on the underbelly, some grape must, uh, nutmeg, baking spices, a little bit of chocolate, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it drinks big. It's 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 a slick whiskey. Um, it has great mouthfeel, great linger, um, and, and a long finish. And and those are a lot of things that you, you know, at least people like me look for 
in, in the American whiskey that we drink. Mm -hmm. So they have uh, multiple different kinds of that. You mentioned black label. I was at a store earlier today, saw the orange label. Um, what can you tell me the differences between the, the different batches? Is it just the, the minimum age blend that they added? Well, there can be layers of differences. So what you saw when you went to the store is an orange label is actually a rye. Mm -hmm. So it's a blended rye. You know, it's going to be a pretty friendly, approachable rye that you can drink. The red label counterpart to it is a bourbon, and that's a blended bourbon. This, if you see the black label, it's, you know, it's a it's usually kind of a, a special small batch blend or a micro blend. And then they have blue labels. The blue labels are always single barrels. So it's just kind of an easy way gotcha. to tell what's what. Oh, that's fantastic, man. Uh, I, much success to those guys. I've tried a lot of their, I mean, they started off kind of with a bang and, and hit the world with vodka really hard before mm -hmm. they started really coming out with the whiskeys. And uh, you did mention that this is, um, you know, they don't distill the Mayor Pinkery. It is, it is brought in, but they blend it in their own barrels, age it, um, get it to the, to the taste that they want. Um, that, that for a while was kind of a, a a no-no in the industry to be known for getting like the Indiana liquor, right? But now it's like, there's people out there and I liken this to speciation in Grand Rapids, the brewers, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't brew his own beer. He buys in wort from other people because to him, the magic is in the fermentation and it is in the barrel aging and it's in the blending. And he, he doesn't care about the brewing of it. You know, um, I feel like it's become kind of more commonplace now, is it? You see some of these nice higher end stuff that aren't necessarily distilled at the place you buy them from, but they are still a beautiful product because they have to age it. They have to keep it in the right condition. They have to have a master blender and taster to make sure it's smooth and delicious. Well, I, you know, so to backtrack for a second, I mean, they are distilling, right? I think that the, key, yeah. the key thing is they wanted to make sure that their distillate was of the quality and the maturity that it needed to be before they started releasing it. So the easiest thing to do is to, you know, bring in really high quality barrels and sit on them. So, you know, you're kind of tending to them like a, you know, a shepherd and your flock of yeah. barrels uh, and, and testing them and making sure that they're mature. And then obviously wherever they're being held or wherever those barrels are living, the DNA of that area is going to impart something on those barrels as well. Right. Because you've got, ambient humidity, temperature, all kinds of different things that are going to kind of contribute to that. So I think they've done a really good job kind of curating barrels um, and, you know, and releasing them in anticipation of when, you know, their own distillate is going to be the main thing that they, they have. And obviously the gin and the vodka and all that stuff is really, really top notch. So, Oh man, their barrel aged gin. I could just die for it, man. It's I, fantastic. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite things, and I know it's almost heresy, but um, you know, witches hats, uh, blueberry lemonade goza is I would take their barrel-aged gin on the rocks and just put a splash of that blueberry goza over top of it and just to brighten up that that flavor, and it goes so well with those botanicals. But that barrel-aged gin, man, I could drink that, like, all day, every day. I, I'll tell you, and they've, they've had a couple special edition ones, too. Uh, really, really cool stuff. I love Negronis. It's probably one of my mm -hmm. favorite classic cocktails. So any iteration of that using barrel-aged gins or anything like that to me is is always a welcome thing on my bar. So I'm, I'm with you. I love it, man. Well, I know that what you're drinking is a lot better than the um, single malt whiskey out of Virginia that I have in my hand. But, um, but like I said, uh, you know, taking a seat right now and, and just wanted to run to the store and grab whatever was in an airplane bottle for the show today. So um, uh, I, I got rid of everything for that auction. So, you know, I got to stock hey, back up again. Absolutely. Listen, you, you got to drive a beater every once in a while if you want to really appreciate a Ferrari. Right. So I think you're, you're doing it for the people. I, I can appreciate that, you know. <laughs> 
I love it. Well, Darsh, we'll have you back again sometime for another whiskey or beverage topic. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us here at Whiskey and History. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate the time. All right. Cheers, my friend. All right. Well, that was my friend Darsh, Pete. Hey, he seems cool. Can't wait to meet him. He's got a hell of a rack of booze behind him, didn't he? Yes, he did. <laughs> I love it. We talked about me coming to visit, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the show Hot Ones, where they uh, interview celebrities and eat progressively hotter hot wings. Yes. So I, I uh, as you know, am not a scotch guy. Uh, you know, I've been, been a bourbon drinker since I was 21, and uh, I'm 40 now, and everybody has always said, you got to drink scotch. Well, I've never just been that guy, and I think it was because I was introduced to, like, the extreme peated stuff immediately, and it just kind of ruined it for me. So we got the idea yeah. that when I go visit him that we're going to do Hot Ones Scotch Edition with John, where we start with the most mild scotch and work our way all the way up to the most extreme peated in, like, little quarter-ounce tasters and watch my <laughs> face progressively get... And a little drunker right. as we go. It's actually a good idea. And some of the lighter scotches, man. Um, I'm not a big scotch fan either. Uh, Irish whiskeys, yes. Um, uh, and I'm half Irish. I'm actually three quarters Irish and a, a quarter Scot Scottish. Um, so I should have a love for scotch. But I uh, just the the Highland uh, single malts, the more heathery kind of stuff. Uh, Dalwini, if you've ever had that, that's a very palatable on the very light end. And that's where you should start, you know, kind of with those things. And, uh, but I know what you're talking about, like Lagavulin, you know, yeah. that's like Lefroig. eating a full of dirt. Yeah. Yeah. Lafroig. Oh yeah. Same thing. You know? Yep. That's like a, a nope. cat urine. It has that like ammonia smell. Yeah. It's yeah. It's a spoonful of like cat litter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, there's some listeners, some watchers, some viewers, but then nobody wanted to join us for a cheers today. So uh, cheers to you, sir. Cheers to you, sir. Thanks for having me aboard once again. I love it. And, uh, and don't forget May 24th, the Mormon King of Beaver Island. I'll be more than prepared. I'm already prepared, but I'm going to even be more prepared. So. I love it. Well, we'll see you then, my friend. Cheers. All right, brother. Take care. Thank you.